Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to week number two of our New Year's series, The Power of Habits. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that we together defined this whole concept of habits and we, we talked about their power in our lives, both for good and for evil. And we began, began together exploring how habits work. Now, this week, we're going to dive deeper into how habits work and we're going to learn some principles that teach us how we can actually change the habits in our lives. I told you last week that a key passage for this series is Galatians 6, 7 through 9. And I encourage you to begin memorizing that. I want to do that again. If you haven't already, Galatians 6, 7 through 9. And I want us to read these verses together out loud. So would you join me in reading God's word? Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, as I told you last week, this passage really is all about habits. One way or another, every day of our lives, we are sowing with our lives. We are planting with our deeds, with our, with our thoughts, with our words. In other words, we all live by our habits. And we have a choice, Paul says. We have a choice to either practice habits that please the Holy Spirit or habits that please our sinful nature. And habitually pleasing our sinful nature leads to destruction. But habitually pleasing the Spirit leads to life. And so Paul encourages us in these verses to keep on practicing righteous habits, godly habits, holy habits. And he promises us that if we do not give up, God will reward those habits. Now, last week, just by way of reminder, we saw that habits are actually a gift from God. They're good. They're part of how God created us. We saw last week also that habits allow us to learn and grow. By, by automating simple tasks, uh, by giving us mental space to do more complex things, to learn new things beyond, uh, they allow us to learn and to grow. But we also saw that in our fallen world, habits have been damaged by sin. And therefore, they can lead us into sin. They can lead us into habitual sin. They can even lead us into addiction. So as Christ followers, we want to understand how habits work so that we can leverage them for good, leverage them for godliness, leverage them for living in grace and in obedience. And that is not easy. And, you know, Exhibit A is what happens every year around this time, right? Every January, millions of people everywhere make New Year's resolutions, and they are really trying to stop bad habits and really trying to start good habits. And many of you are right there, right? But statistics tell us that 60% of people who make resolutions will fail in just a couple of weeks. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself about this and thought about it, maybe about your own experience with resolutions, but why does that happen? Because people who make resolutions, they, they do that because they really want to change, correct? I mean, they really want to be different people, so why do they fail time and time and time again? Why? 
Well, I think it is because they do not understand what we are learning in this series about how God designed us to work. Uh, I want to tell you about one of the most influential men in the 20th century, a, a man that has changed so many lives, and yet most people have never seen a picture of him. Uh, this person has either impacted your life directly or he's impacted the, the life of, of people that you know, but you've probably never seen his face. His name is Bill Wilson. Uh, most people know him as Bill W. Now, Bill Wilson was raised in a family of teetotalers, and he himself, as he grew up, he never drank alcohol. But then he went into the army, and he was motivated. He was, he was sharp and clever. He, he wanted to become an officer, and he's on the track to be, becoming an officer. And at an officer's party uh, one evening, he was handed a cocktail. It was a Bronx cocktail, and as a pastor, I did not know what that was. I had to look it up. Just got to give that disclaimer. Uh, gin, vermouth, and orange juice. And he drank this cocktail, took one sip, and he turned to the person next to him and he said, I have just discovered the elixir of life. Well, for the next two decades, drinking became a major part of his life. And by the mid-1930s, uh, he was spinning completely out of control. He had lost his job. His money was all gone. His family was almost gone. And one cold winter day, a drinking buddy, old drinking buddy from the army showed up uh, to visit him. Bill Wilson poured him a drink like he always had before. But this time, the friend refused. And he said to him, I have been dry for two months. Well, Bill Wilson had wanted to stop drinking too because he had seen how it was destroying his life. And so he said to this friend, he said, tell me about that. How did this happen? And his friend started talking about sin. Started talking about how the Bible says that when we are enslaved to sin, we are literally powerless to overcome it. And he said to Bill, I received Jesus Christ into my life and he's transformed my life. Bill Wilson thought, this guy is nuts. Like he used to get drunk on alcohol all the time, he's, he's now drunk on religion. And he, he totally rejected his friend's advice and he continued his downward spiral. He ended up desperately checking himself into a prestigious New York clinic for alcoholism, but that didn't work. He finally got to the point where he could hardly function. He was hallucinating, he had tremors, he was in constant pain, and one night he finally hit bottom. He was completely alone, and realizing that he was unable to help himself, this lifelong atheist cried out, all right, if there is a God, let him show himself, I am ready to do anything. And what happened next, in answer to that prayer, has been retold millions of times in thousands of 12-step groups. Bill Wilson experienced what he called an ecstasy, and he interpreted it as the very presence of God. And the desire to drink was taken completely away from him, and he never for the rest of his life, had another drink. Bill Wilson, though, wisely realized that that wouldn't happen most to most people that quickly. And so he decided that he was going to spend the rest of his life helping people change the habit that almost killed him. And the result, of course, is the 12-step program we know as Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And many of you realize the 12 steps are a huge part of our Celebrate Recovery program here at Southlands. I want to be clear about a few things. Uh, interestingly enough, Bill Wilson did not follow any scientific formula for AA. For example, do you know why there were 12 steps? Uh, Bill Wilson said it could have been 10, could have been 14. But he chose 12 because 12 was a, was a major number in the Bible. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. He said the number 12 must be important to God. And so he came up with a way to make it 12 steps. And this is the kind of thinking that went into the 12-step program. It was very informed uh, by the scriptures. And what I want to show you today is that AA is an incredible example of a key insight about habits. Here's the first thing I want you to write down on your notes. And it's this. It's not easy to stop a bad habit. In fact, it's almost impossible. Can I get a witness? And we know today scientifically that habits literally change your brain. Neural pathways get formed in your brain that, that, that cannot just be erased. But here's the good news. It's relatively easy to start a new habit that replaces the old. And this is the first thing that Bill Wilson got exactly right because he asked those who were beginning AA to make a commitment to attend 90 meetings in 90 days. And if a meeting wasn't available, then you could call your sponsor. And I hope you can see what he was doing. He didn't just say stop drinking. He said, start this new substitute habit. So with the rest of our time today, we're going to be talking about, well, how do you start a new substitute habit? And there are ways to do this that are both biblical and workable. And I think once you understand this concept, you will see it over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture, and it really will change your life. Now, as we review, uh, I want us to look at how habits work, and you're going to keep hearing this. We talked about it last week. I'm going to show it to you again. Uh, this habit loop that scientists have discovered, and maybe you remember, it begins with a cue. And this could be any number of things. It could be loneliness. It could be hunger. It could be anger. Some of you like to mix those two together, combine them, and you're hangry. Can I get a witness out here on that one, right? Um, it could be fatigue. It could be boredom. Uh, maybe it's pain for some people. Sometimes it's a time of day or a certain place. But something cues, something triggers the beginning of a habit for you. And then second, there's this routine that you follow in response to the cue. Maybe you start drinking. Maybe you start aimlessly eating. Maybe you surf the internet for hours and hours on end. For some people, the response is raging or just other different compulsive behaviors. And then third, there's the reward. And the reward comes from the routine, and it could be a buzz or a or a high, or maybe this, just a sense of release. Maybe it's a, a just distraction from your anxieties or from your loneliness. Maybe it's a kind of pleasure. It could be many different things. Now, researchers first described this loop in a famous experiment with a monkey named Julio. And don't worry if you're inclined to think about this. They did not hurt the monkey. They only gave the monkey what the monkey wanted. Now, here's the experiment. Julio and a number of other monkeys like Julio were given a TV in their living space. 
And whenever the TV would show a colored shape, say a red square or a green circle, then if the monkey would press a lever, the monkey would get a reward. And it turns out that monkeys love, love, love fruit juice. And so they would give him fruit juice every time he touched the lever in response to the cue. And so this cue, this, the cue was the colored shape, the routine was press the lever, the reward was the fruit juice. Now what happened was that Julio sat glued to his TV all day, waiting for that magic cue. And they, of course, had uh, monitored, they were monitoring his brain waves, and every time they discovered he took a drink, his brain activity spiked, showing that he was very happy. In other words, the endorphins were flowing from the fruit juice. But then, as they continued, something interesting happened. The, the spike in brain activity began to happen, not just when he took a drink of the fruit juice, but earlier at the cue stage. He would start feeling the endorphins when he first saw the colored shape. Now, sometimes as part of the experiment, they withheld the fruit juice, and when he did the routine but didn't get the reward, Julio became very moody. And no one wants to be around a moody monkey. And so he would sulk, uh, he would get destructive, you know, the angry in his cage, throw things around because he didn't get the complete reward that he had been anticipating. And they discovered the same thing happens with human beings. I think you'll recognize this. I'll give you some examples. Uh, one is gambling addicts. A gambling addicts start feeling the endorphins, the high of winning, of taking risks long before they walk into a casino. Now, just thinking about gambling gets them excited. But then when they don't get the gamble, they become sulky, grumpy. They become moody monkeys, you know. And same thing happens with alcoholics. Same thing happens with shopaholics or pornaholics or workaholics. And they discovered, as they analyzed these things, that when habits happen, uh, when you start to anticipate the reward at the cue stage, that's when the habit has become set. And that is when habits become almost impossible to erase. It's kind of like those animals that we see, say, at, at Six Flags SeaWorld or a circus. And it's just amazing, you know, when you see these trained animals, the shows that they do, like the sea lions, where, you know, they're acting out these really elaborate scripts. And it's really an incredible thing. I don't know if you've thought about this, but, you know, if you've ever been to San Francisco or Santa Cruz and you've been down on the ocean and you've seen the sea lions, you know, you realize that these are like the laziest tub of lards God ever created, right? And yet they're working for a living. <laughs> you know, they're doing all this stuff. I mean, how do they do that? Well, it turns out that sea lions will do almost anything for just a couple sardines. You see, this picture that you see right here, well, that is a picture of the habit loop. And so anytime you see any animal trained to do anything, it's because it's been linked to their favorite reward. And really, uh, we human beings are wired the same way. That means you could write this down, you have to ask yourself, what's my sardine? You know, what reward tends to motivate me? Well, researchers have found that for human beings, there are three kinds of reward. I'm going to give those to you really quickly. First, there's pleasure, and that's where, like, I feel better now. You get a high, you get a buzz. 
Next, there's a social reward. This is where I'm liked, I'm accepted, I'm part of the group. And then third, there are achievement rewards. And this is, I'm making progress. I've accomplished something. And, and the truth is, probably each one of us tends to favor one of these three areas of reward. Now, if you look at this, this highlights really the genius of Bill W. and his 12 steps, enlightened by God's word, because he realized that for most alcoholics and drug addicts, uh, you know, you might think, well, why are they drinking and why are they using? And it's because of pleasure, right? Well, he realized, actually, very few people drink and use solely because of pleasure. For many people, the social reward is a huge part of their addiction. And so, realizing this, he substituted the fellowship of the 12-step group for the fellowship of the party. He didn't just say, stop going to the party. He said, Here's a substitute thing you can do, a new habit you can develop. And then there's that, that, that area of reward and achievement that you don't have when your life is like being flushed down the toilet by, by using. And he said, here, there are 12 steps that you work. So there's a sense of progress in your life, and there's a sense of achievement in your life. Uh, there's a, uh, they keep track of your sober day. So like at 30 days, you get a chip, and at 90 days, you get a chip. So you feel like you're accomplishing something. There's this built-in social reward, built-in achievement reward. And you might be thinking, well, what about the pleasure reward? Because you're not getting the, the buzz of the high anymore. Well, brilliantly and biblically, he said, there is a pleasure reward that comes from living soberly and righteously. He called it serenity. The Bible calls it peace. And he said, this is something you do not have in your life when you're addicted to a self-destructive pattern. You may get a buzz or a high, but you don't get that, that sense of wholeness, that sense of integrity, that sense of peace that you get when you are living a holy and righteous life. And when you discover this habit loop and you begin to understand it, you will begin to see that the best recovery programs and the best exercise programs, they all tend to have these three kinds of rewards. And when you read the Bible, understanding the habit loop, you will begin to see this even in Scripture in so many places. And the reason is this is how God designed us to function. You see, God, as we talked about last week, wants you not to have to think about every single step you need to take, but he wants you to build autopilots into your life that automatically steer you in the right direction. You know, I could give you a lot of examples from Scripture. Just going to give you one right now. Uh, and it's a very familiar passage, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's a passage some of you have memorized. You probably know it by heart, many of you. But I want us to look at this, and I want you to, with me, see the pattern that's happening here. See the habit loop. I'd like us again to read this part of God's Word out loud together. So would you join me? Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now let's, let's think together about these two verses. And I'm going to invite you right now to talk back to me, okay? And uh, I want you to look at these verses, and I, I want you to answer this question. What's the cue? What's the trigger here? Somebody say. 
Anxiety, okay? Anxiety or worry. Uh, anything that causes you to be anxious or to worry, that's the trigger, that's the cue. And so Paul says, instead of doing what you normally do, which is entering into a cycle of worry, you know how that goes, right? Your mind starts worrying, your thoughts start spinning around, you go into this and it goes down and down and down. Instead of doing that, Paul says, you substitute a new routine. What's the routine in these verses? Prayer. You pray. Paul says, pray about everything. Tell God all of your needs. And he says, don't forget to be grateful. So you have a new routine for the cue or the trigger of anxiety. What's the reward in these two verses? If you do these, these things that Paul's talking about, you will experience what? Peace. God's peace. In other words, serenity. See, here's the thing that you need to understand. The Bible rarely tells you just not to do something. The Bible almost always tells you to replace that thing you shouldn't be doing, that sin, that unrighteous habit, with a new habit, a new action, a righteous habit, a righteous action. The Bible almost always tells us to replace, not just to stop. And this is something that I really want you to see. Um, another thing that we see in the Bible <clears throat> is that the Bible almost always promises reward. And this is a very important thing to understand because many of us have grown up in churches that are really just uncomfortable with this whole idea of reward. A lot of us have been told, you're just supposed to obey. You're just supposed to do the right thing. You should not expect any word. Just do the right thing. And that sounds kind of noble. That sounds kind of righteous, doesn't it? The only problem is it doesn't much sound like the Bible. And if you understand this, you will see it again and again. Rewards are all over the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples. This comes from Ephesians 6. This is something, if you're a parent, you have probably used on your kids recently. It says, children, obey your parents. Right? Well, if you keep reading, this is Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. It says, children, obey your parents so it may go well with you and so you may live a long life. And sometimes we parents add some words that aren't in the Scripture so that I won't kill you next week. I mean, it doesn't say that in the Bible. That's what we're thinking. But you notice that obedience is linked to doing well. Uh, you can go to Deuteronomy 6, also a place where uh, Moses is here addressing parents. He says, teach your children God's word. You're to talk about what God teaches us all the time throughout your day. When you rise, when you sit, when you're out walking, everywhere in your life. Why? Moses says, so that you will prosper in all you do. Reward. Joshua 1 is a passage that encourages us to get God's word into our lives. And it says you, be, you are to be careful to obey God's laws in every way. Why? So you will be, and the word used is here is successful. So you will be successful. He goes on to say, meditate on God's laws day and night. Why? So that you will prosper. There is reward in these verses. Reward is all over the Bible. And it's kind of an interesting thing. Research actually demonstrates that people who know God and people who attend church regularly and people who read God's word and pray regularly, they tend to have better health. And they tend to report better happiness levels. Just some of the kinds of rewards that scripture promises. 
Now, of course, this does not mean that all Christ followers will always be healthy and wealthy. It does mean that all things being equal, you will experience more peace of mind, more serenity in life, more blessing if you do the things that God tells you to do. See, this is just how habits work. And with all that in front of us, well, the question is, how do I change my habits? And I'm pretty confident, you know, looking across this room, that you probably right now know something in your life that you want to change, right? And if you're unsure of something that needs to change in your life, just ask the person you came with, and they will explain to you what you need to change. Am I right? You know? And so I want to show you with the rest of our time three principles uh, that help us change our habits. Three principles, and you need to know before we get there, the last is the most important. So here's the first one. We'll start with this. First step, step in changing habits is leverage the habit loop. Leverage the habit loop that we've just been describing. Now, there are three parts to doing this, and I'll give them to you. You first of all, identify your cues. If you're not aware of the thing that triggers you, that causes you to engage in a habit, you need to know that. Second, substitute a new routine. And then finally, enjoy God's rewards. Now, maybe you remember last week we talked about Charles Duhigg's story from his book, The Power of Habits, how he noticed that while he was writing this book in that big magazine office where he worked, that every single afternoon at 3 p.m. he'd get a cue and he'd go get a cookie in the break room. You remember that story? And so he, he, he would leave his desk, he would go to the break room where his coworkers would be, he'd buy a cookie, he'd eat a cookie while he was talking to his friends, and he'd go back to his office. And he realized after a year or so of doing this that he was gaining weight. And he didn't like that, and so he decided that he would put his own research that he was using to write the book into dealing with his habit. And so he began to think about this. He analyzed his habit, and he asked himself, what's the cue? Well, it turns out it was 3 p.m. It was like every day, right at 3 p.m. It's always within a minute or two of the hour. He didn't know maybe it's low blood sugar. Maybe it's just kind of boredom from sitting in front of a computer screen so long. But his body had learned this cue. And the routine was he would go to the break room and he would eat a cookie. When he got to the reward, he was kind of stumped at first. What really was the reward? Because he said it wasn't really the cookie. He, he said actually the cookies weren't that good. He didn't like them that much. By the way, does anybody else do that? You ever eat stuff that, I mean, as you're eating it, you're going, why am I eating this? This isn't even that good. You know, and then you have another one, right? Um, but that's what was going on with him, and he thought about it, and he realized that what happened was he really loved hanging out with his coworkers and talking with them. That was the reward. And so what he did to change was this. When the cue happened, 3 p.m., he still went to the break room. But instead of eating a cookie, he just brought healthier food, fruit slices, nuts with him from home. He brought that to the office, and that's what he ate. So he substituted a new routine, and he gave himself the exact same reward, socializing. And he found that by keeping the cue and keeping the reward, but substituting a different routine, his old habit was totally replaced by a new habit in just a few weeks. Now, I want to be clear and say to you, this is not a message or a series about losing weight. It's not about self-improvement. This is about something much deeper and more profound than that. It is about spiritual change. And again, this is a pattern we see all through 
the Bible. I'll give you another example. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This is what it says. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now let me ask you, do you see the cue and the routine and the reward in this verse? What's the cue? You're insulted, right? What's the old routine? Insult him back. How many of you think your spiritual gift is responding to insult? Anybody here want to? Nobody wants to raise their hand, but some of you out like act like that right you live that way i mean we like that we live in a culture right now where we, we really prize that quick comeback and especially the cutting you know if somebody cuts you down you cut them down even harder and we really admire you know that kind of thing um maybe this greatest example of this sort of thing was winston churchill i don't know if you've heard this about him but he was renowned for his ability just to instantly respond to anything and the most famous example of this came from this running feud that he had with a woman named Lady Astor. For whatever reason, these two people hated each other. Um, and one time, she got onto an elevator, and he was on the elevator. And she looked at him, and she said, and I wish I could do the British accent for you, but you're just going to have to imagine it. She said, Sir Churchill, if I was your wife, I'd put poison in your tea. And he looked at her without missing a beat, and he said, Madam, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> now, some of you are really good at insults, right? It's kind of a habit. But let me remind you, you're sowing to please your flesh, and it leads to destruction. That's what the God, Word of God says. But what does Peter say to do here? See, the cue is the insult. What's the new routine? You bless those who insult you. You say something positive about them in return. You do something positive for them. And then what's the reward? So that you may inherit a blessing. You trust that when you obey God in this matter, God will reward you. And I want to tell you, he will. Just try it. When you do what Peter says here, blessing those who insult you, I think you will find that counterintuitively you have a bigger sense of control over your situation. Instead of getting yourself all riled up, you develop a sense of peace and serenity. Now, let me get real personal here. Um, you know how the doctor said just recently, not too long ago, that you should be exercising more? Like walking 30 minutes a day. You say, how do you know that he said that to me? Because he says it to everybody. I mean, <laughs> right? And um, a lot of us get that kind of advice and we don't do it. Can I get a witness? Doctor tells you to do something, you don't do what he says. Well, let's just say, uh, what if you think about what we've been learning and like Charles Duhigg, you realize that what you really love to do is socialize. And, and so what if you were to do something like get a friend to exercise with you, to walk with you, so that while you're doing this thing you need to do, you're getting the reward that you actually love from that habit. Here's the thing. Even if that doesn't resonate with you, do you see the principle that you will apply the habit better, you will develop the habit better if you understand that because that's the way that God made you? Do you have this first key? Do you see it? Do you see how it works? 
Again, it's not about trying harder. It's about training yourself, following the way God designed you to work. Let me give you the second key to changing your habits. And it's, it's this. Don't try to change a, a whole bunch of habits all at once. This is the most common mistake. Instead, focus on a keystone habit. Now, we've talked about this in the past a few times, but let me explain briefly, and we'll talk about this more throughout our series. But what's a keystone habit? Well, it is a habit that has impact on other habits. It's a habit that makes other habits flourish. I'll give you an example. Some 20 years ago or so, the accepted wisdom was that if you wanted to get people to lose weight, you would give them advice. You would tell them how to change. They would do it in the form of a pamphlet, and it would say stuff like, change your diet, eat this, don't do this. It would say things like, exercise more, and here's how. All kinds of advice. But when they actually researched how well all that advice worked, they, they found that the results were abysmal. Because you see, when you give people 50 new things to do, like all at once, you have now given them 50 new ways to fail. And so people would just give up. Then in 2009, research was being done by the National Institute of Health, and they accidentally made a paradigm-shattering discovery. Fascinating study. They, they gathered 1,600 people who were obese, and they gave them one new habit to develop. Just one. Here it is. They said, keep a food diary of what you eat. And not daily, only one day a week. And you get to pick the day. How many of you are already plotting how you would do that, right? <laughs> Super simple habit to do, very easy to carry out. But here's the interesting thing. What started happening was this keystone habit started taking over people's lives. This was the only instruction that the researchers gave, but most people started keeping food diaries every day. And they started, as they kept these diaries on their own, noticing patterns in their own lives. Like, you know, I snack every day at 3 p.m. And so they started on their own substituting healthy snacks a lot of people started using their diaries not just to record what they ate, but also to forecast what they were going to eat. In other words, they started planning meals. They started determining what they would eat. All kinds of healthy behaviors came out of this one keystone habit. And by the end of the study, people who had kept up with their weekly food diaries had lost 25% more weight than people in a control group. And the discovery was this. They learned the importance of just giving people one key thing to change. Now, I could show you so many ways the Bible talks about this, and we will talk about it more in the weeks ahead, but I want to give you one example of a keystone habit, and I will tell you ahead of time, it is the most important keystone habit. I will tell you, if you don't take anything else away from this message, you should take this away. And it's simply this, you need in your life the habit of Bible intake, Bible intake. I'm going to give you a passage of scripture, maybe you've heard it before, it's Psalm 1 verses 1 through 3, let me read it to you. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Stop there, meditating on scripture one thing, what happens if you practice this habit? Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, say it with me, 
prospers. Prospering in all of your life is linked to one keystone habit. And what is that habit? Meditating on Scripture day in, day out, day in, day out. Now we're going to talk more about this next week. But if you want to change the habits in your life, there is no greater keystone habit to develop than Bible intake. And you've heard me say this to you before, right? Many times. You say, why are you saying this again? Why do you keep telling us to do this? Because you're not listening. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not asking you to make confession right now in front of everybody, but I, I guarantee you there's a whole lot of us sitting right here right now who've heard me say this multiple, multiple times, and you're still not doing it. You're still not reading God's word regularly. You're still not taking time to meditate on what God says to you in his holy word, the scriptures, the Bible. And so, you know, here's the thing. I'm just going to keep telling you. I'm going to keep encouraging you because, you know why? Because I love you. And because it's the best thing that I can tell you to do. The word of God, get it into your life. You must make the regular reading and memorizing and meditating on the word of God, a, a part of your life, a habit of your life. I, I, I pointed you to the YouVersion app last week. I'm going to put this up here again. I'm going to mention it again. You know, technology has brought us so many things in the 21st century that are not positive, that are not life-giving, but the YouVersion app is not one of those things. It's an incredible blessing. It's free. Hundreds of Bible versions, versions in many languages, all on your phone, which is with you at all times. I know that. Thousands of Bible reading plans that are there for you to read. A, a, a plan for a week, a plan for a month, a plan for a year, just to help you get God's word into your life. You can have daily scriptures sent to you. They'll come to you. You don't even ask for them. All of this is free. Some of you go, well, I don't want another app on my phone. Fine. We have Bible reading plans out in the lobby you can pick up. I don't care how you do it. That's not the point. The point is, will you do it? Will you do it? Will you leave here in just a few minutes and keep living the way you've always been living? Or you begin to bring God's word into your life more and more and more each and every day. Now, there are other keystone habits to develop, habits that have ripple effects all across your life. There, the, they, they may be habits of exercise, which has been demonstrated to do that. I mean, when you take care of the body that God has given you as a gift, habits of service where you start practicing selflessness instead of selfishness in, in, in tangible ways in your life, that changes you. Journaling is a keystone habit for, for many people where you take time to write down what God is, is doing in your life. The habit of community, which, by the way, means get in a life group. This will change so many things in your life. A couple of other interesting ones. Do you know that family dinner, sitting down with your family and eating dinner together has been shown to be a keystone habit? If kids are still in your home, I'm telling you, you don't do this. You should start doing this. It is transformative. And then gratitude, just practicing thankfulness as a habit every day. All of these things are keystone habits. How do you change your habits? Well, leverage the habit loop. Focus on a keystone habit. And then third, the most important step of all, 
a step without which none of the others work. You trust in God's power. I want to read you a paragraph from the book, The Power of Habits, because I just love it when secular researchers discover in their research things that the Bible shows to be true. Here's what it says. Researchers trying to figure out why the 12 steps work noticed a pattern in interviews. Over and over, recovering alcoholics said the same thing. Yes, identifying cues and choosing new routines is important, but without another ingredient, the new habits never took hold. The secret, they said, was God. And researchers hated that explanation because God is not a testable hypothesis. But finally, in 2005, a group of scientists associated with UC Berkeley looked at data to see if there really was a correlation between religious belief and how long people stayed sober. And indeed, a pattern emerged. Those who believed were far more likely to make it through stressful periods with their sobriety intact. One researcher quoted in the book said, said this. He said, I wouldn't have said this a year ago. That's how fast our understanding is changing. But belief seems critical. They go on, they, they go on to say it is beyond uh, us to determine whether or not gods exist. But we can tell you this for sure. Believing he exists changes everything. What's more, they said, being in a group of people who believe, at some point, People look around and they say, you know, if it worked for that guy, it can work for me. They said, a community creates belief. And the truth is, that is exactly what the Bible says in so many places. Now, for now, uh, this point is summarized very well for us in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, our last passage for today. This is what Paul writes. Work hard to show the results of your salvation obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Now listen to this. You do have a responsibility to sow good seeds. But the power to do that, that doesn't come from you. It is all about God's power at work within you. And you may be here today in a place where you desperately need something to change in your life. Maybe, maybe you've already started your recovery. You're looking to a higher power uh, as you define him. I just want to challenge you. Just being here today in a group of believers is so very important. I want to challenge you, like we say at Celebrate Recovery, keep coming back. Keep coming back. But most importantly, if you look specifically to the God who truly is, to the God who is the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you will find, as you look to him and trust in him, real life change happening for you like you've never seen before. This verse is telling you that if you obey God, God will give you the will, that is the desire, and he will give you the power that you need to achieve his purpose in your life. You see, God's purpose, the Bible tells us, is to make us like Jesus. And what that means is our transformation is God's will. And that means when you want to change and when you begin to act to change, God is behind you 100%. Let me leave you with a question. What change do you need to trust God's power to work in your life? What change right now? Before you leave today, I'm going to ask you, will you identify that? Probably write it down would be the best thing to do. Write down what that change needs to be if you haven't done this 
already. And it may be simply that you need to commit to regular Bible intake for 2020 to get on a Bible reading plan. It may be that you need to commit to get in community and join a life group. For some of you, that change will be, you need to start coming to celebrate recovery on Friday nights. Or maybe you need to come on Wednesdays for other kinds of recovery where we have care night. Maybe that would serve you better. But whatever the change may be, whatever the change you need, God is for you. God is with you. He and his power are available right now. And the question is simply this. Will you trust in God's power? Will you receive that power and let God begin to change your life? This is the word of the Lord today. And all God's people say,